Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. My name is Kenneth Anderson. I'm your host. Our guest tonight will be Sharon Stancliffe from the Harm Reduction Coalition to talk a little bit about replacement therapies, and Katie Rickowitz, who's worked with uh, Alan Marlatt in uh, Seattle, and she will be talking about relapse prevention. Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little plug for our website and our book. Our organization is called the Hams Harm Reduction Network. We are a free of charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any change in their alcohol habits. Um, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether, our website is hamsnetwork.org. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. You can get more details if you go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our first guest tonight is Dr. Sharon Stancliffe from the Harm Reduction Coalition, and she's going to be talking about replacement therapy such as methadone maintenance, buprenorphine therapy, and also some overdose prevention details about Narcan. Sharon, how are you doing tonight? Very well. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Glad to have you. Tell us a little bit about methadone maintenance and how it works and what it is. Well, methadone maintenance is a treatment for people that have a compulsive addiction to heroin or to the many prescription opioids that that is an increasing problem across the United States today. What we see when people are using heroin or perhaps OxyContin or Vicodin is that they spend a huge amount of time obtaining the drug, taking the drug, going on kind of a roller coaster from being high to being drug sick to just trying to get by. And we learned back in the 1960s that this looks perhaps even like a medical disorder rather than a moral or a psychiatric disorder. And a couple of very brave physicians, Dr. Maria Nicewander and Vincent Dole, thought, why don't we try giving people a steady dose of a medication and see if this helps? They settled upon methadone, which is a drug that you can take once a day, can swallow it rather than inject it or sniff it, and once people are steadily maintained on it, they actually don't feel intoxicated or high. They just feel normal. So over the years, we found that people who participate in methadone maintenance, take their methadone daily, are less likely to take drugs in the first place. And even if they do take other drugs, they're less likely to become HIV positive, hepatitis C positive, or to overdose because whatever drug use they continue to participate in is under far better control. Now, I, I want to emphasize again that many of the people on these maintenance therapies actually stop using drugs. So that solves a huge problem right there. Okay. Um, you said they take a methadone once a day. How does that compare with people using heroin or morphine or something like that? They take them more often? Well, Yes, most heroin users need to take heroin three to four times a day, some people a little less, some people a little bit more, and they take it by more dangerous routes. They're, they're taking a drug that they buy on the street. You don't know what's in it. Many, many people eventually move to injection because injection is the most economical way to get the most bang out of the, the dollars that you're spending. So a heroin user typically needs to get up in the morning, take heroin, find heroin for six to eight hours later, and yet again find heroin. So they spend perhaps, if their tolerance isn't too high, a little bit of time with that high that they were seeking in the beginning. But most heroin users or OxyContin users don't actually get that high anymore. They've developed so much tolerance, they're just looking to avoid the withdrawal. A few hours later, they go into withdrawal and need to find the drug again. Whereas if you're taking methadone or I think we'll come to buprenorphine, one takes a medication once a day, feels essentially nothing from it, but there's there's actually three benefits. One is when you start methadone or buprenorphine, you don't need to go through the withdrawal that, that users dread. The second one is that if you take heroin or OxyContin or whatever on top of it, the tolerance is such that you don't feel it, which is kind of a negative reinforcement. But most important is that it cuts the craving for the opiate. And that's what drives people to relapse. It's hard to go through withdrawal, but what we find is that some portion of people with dependence on opiates, again, OxyContin, heroin, even after they stop taking it, they've been through withdrawal, the cold turkey, that for weeks, months, years, they continue to crave that. 
And that's the key point to opiate replacement therapy or opiate maintenance therapy, is that it stops the craving so people can continue with their life without constantly wondering, gee, maybe I'd feel better if I took some oxygen. Maybe I'd feel better if I took some heroin. They stop thinking about it. In fact, my experience with my patients is that they even stop having this very typical dream about it. Now, uh, does methadone maintenance reduce uh, criminal activities? Well, buying heroin is illegal and methadone is legal, right? Absolutely. Um, the best data from that is actually back in New York City from the 1970s when they put about 20,000 people onto methadone in one year when it was new. And they found that it cut not only hepatitis B rates, we didn't have HIV back then, but it cut, it cut property crime rates. Because if you've got a heroin habit that costs you $100 a day, one needs to find the money. So if you stop the heroin habit, that's $100 less people need each day. And even if you reduce it, and so people are only using heroin occasionally, they don't need to participate in selling drugs, helping people find drugs, property crime. We find that sex work is reduced as well. We don't find that, that people that are selling sex for drugs or money necessarily turn to, oh, now I can get the money for a color TV or a nice TV. They actually change their lives. So, yes, it has an incredible reduction in crime in addition to the bloodborne viruses. I've heard some people say that they think that uh, drug use releases inhibitions and it, it causes crime because when people take drugs, they're not in inhibited. Is there any truth to that? Um, yeah, probably. I, I would say less so with some of the more sedating drugs such as heroin. When people achieve the high that they want with heroin, they just want to relax. Um, some of the stimulants perhaps reduce some of the inhibitions. I think more about sex, actually, than I do about crime. Um, but I think my feeling is that a lot of the crime is simply related to the fact that they've got an illegal habit that requires a lot of money and people begin to feel like the, the need for the drugs is almost as strong as the need that, that we all have for food and water. Okay. Can people get a prescription for methadone and just get it at the drugstore and take it home? Unfortunately not. Now, methadone is, is one of the strangest drugs in the country in terms of how it can be prescribed. If I were to treat you for heroin or, or, or other opiate addiction, you need to be treated in specially licensed clinics that require that your dose of, hero of, of methadone is observed six or seven days a week until you show yourself to be a responsible patient. Now, if I were to treat you for pain with methadone, I can give you whatever methadone you want, I mean, whatever methadone I choose to give you. And that's a bit of a problem because methadone is a pain management medication. It's very effective, but it's a little more complicated than most. So if some of the listeners have heard about methadone overdoses around the country, the vast majority of that is related to poorly prescribed methadone for pain problems. And that's essentially where buprenorphine came, comes in, because buprenorphine is another medication that can be used to treat heroin or other opiate addiction, but I can prescribe it to you to take home and take on a, I can prescribe it to you once a week or once a month, whatever I feel comfortable with. And that allows for a lot more latitude. If you have a job, you have child care, you have other obligations and can't come to the clinic once a week. Now, if people are coming to the methadone clinic, are they being uh, monitored for other drug use? Most methadone programs, well, actually, the, the federal regulations require that methadone programs check urine toxicology to look for some number of other drugs. Different, different clinics can choose to look for different drugs. My, the clinic that I've been associated with for years looks for benzodiazepines such as Xanax, looks for cocaine, checks to make sure the methadone is there, um, perhaps methamphetamine, a couple of other drugs. Some clinics monitor for marijuana, others don't. But yes, they're required to monitor for the other drugs, but there's nothing in the regulations that says what they must do with that information. If you're using other drugs, then they strongly discourage that I give you take-home methadone doses, but I can keep you in treatment. Now, unfortunately, there are methadone programs around the country that will say, well, if you're using cocaine, you're using marijuana, we will discharge you from treatment, which is truly the opposite of harm reduction. Methadone treats opiate addiction. It 
doesn't treat the other addictions for which we really don't have very good treatment. So that's a very dangerous policy out there. We're also required that we observe the methadone dosing each day until one has earned the right to have take-home doses and a certain amount of counseling each week or each month is prescribed. Uh, yeah, I've known some people that were taking methadone and they used Xanax uh, recreationally, not so much addictively, but they were always worried that they were going to get in trouble with it, that they would be discharged from treatment. But there, you, is there uh, recreational drug use uh, among people that are taking methadone? Oh, absolutely. There's recreational and there's there's addictive compulsive drug use among people taking methadone. Certainly we see people that use legal and illegal drugs, alcohol, Xanax, marijuana, cocaine, occasionally. We also see people that have severe cocaine habits or severe alcohol problems that take these drugs repeatedly throughout their treatment. Again, methadone clinics should work on counseling people about it, offer them options, but we just don't have great treatment for it. And there are methadone programs that indeed will discharge people for using any of these drugs just a few times, let alone repeatedly. But to my mind, the best practice is to keep people in treatment for their opiate addiction because when they hit the street and start injecting heroin again, they're at risk of getting HIV, transmitting HIV or hepatitis C, again, at risk of arrest. Jails are not healthy places for people. So I think, you know, this is one of the issues facing methadone in this country is what to do about people that use other drugs. And as a harm reductionist and as somebody that just came into it because I was seeing so much HIV, we need to keep those people in treatment. Okay. Is uh, there is there any problem or how big a problem is there with methadone getting diverted uh, that's being prescribed for pain or for methadone maintenance being sold on the street instead of being used as intended? Um, yes, there are some significant problems with that. Here in New York City, where we have a lot of methadone maintenance clinics, when we do surveys on the street, we mostly find that the people buying methadone on the street are people with addiction problems that are buying some methadone to get them by until they can get heroin again or perhaps to try to, to taper off the heroin. But across the country, we are seeing a lot of methadone sold in the streets or being given away and as far as the Service Administration for Mental Health and Substance Abuse has found it, it appears that that methadone is coming from places that are prescribing methadone for pain. Again, if you come in to me for pain and I choose to treat with methadone, I can give you a huge amount for you to take away and come back and see me next month. People sell it. They see people in need. They see people desiring getting high. They sell it. They give it away. And methadone is a complicated drug, and so people don't know how to use it even for the purpose they intend to, and we do see a large number of methadone overdose deaths. And to compound that problem, my, methadone is very inexpensive. So my understanding, not in New York State, but in several other states, Medicaid encourages the use of methadone for pain because it's so much less expensive than other drugs. The doctors are not necessarily well enough educated to prescribe the methadone, and the people receiving it are not well enough educated to understand that they have a different drug in their hands than most of the other opiates that are being prescribed. So people misuse it and die. Okay, methadone has a word-of-mouth reputation of uh, being harmful to the body's organs. Is there any truth to this? Um, essentially, no. The main side effects of methadone for most people are increase, increased perspiration, which can be very bothersome, constipation, which again can be very bothersome. For a certain number, we see it more in men, I guess because it's sort of more obvious, but there can be some decreases in, in testosterone and libido. Most everybody on drug treatment gains weight, and some people with methadone swell up a little bit. But in terms of getting into the bones, there's no evidence that it does so. It's been clearly shown to be safe even for people with cirrhosis of the liver. Um, now, you might have read a little bit about it can change the cardiac rhythm, which leaves open the potential for a dangerous 
um, arrhythmia, but that's extremely rare. And if you compare that to the number of lives saved by people being on methadone that don't get HIV, that don't have a drug overdose, it's minuscule. It's like maybe less than 1 in 10,000 compared to being on methadone essentially cuts your risk of death in half and cuts your risk of overdose down uh, down to one-fifth of what it was outside there. So, but yes, people think it gets in the bones, it gets in the teeth, and you know, when you go to a methadone program, you see unhealthy people, people that can't run the street anymore to buy their drugs, are essentially that's what pushes them into treatment. So we do see people that just can't get the heroin anymore. They used to be extremely capable people. Heroin users are really smart, or else they die. So we see very very smart people on the street, and then when then they get too old or too tired, they come to treatment. So I think that contributes some to that myth. Okay. Um, tell us a little bit about buprenorphine and what's the difference between methadone and buprenorphine? Well, both methadone and buprenorphine do the same, have the same goals. Prevent withdrawal, prevent people from feeling the heroin or, or other opiates that they take it and cut the craving. But buprenorphine has a couple of major differences. One is that we've already discussed how methadone can lead to overdose. Buprenorphine is a strange drug in that it has a ceiling effect. And so if an adult takes even a huge amount of buprenorphine, they may get quite sedated, but they will not go into respiratory depression and die. So it's a safer drug in that sense that unless you mix it with other drugs, the likelihood of overdose is extremely low. So I presume that's why the U.S. Congress voted to allow primary care or any physician to prescribe it as long as they take a course in that. So first of all, it's very hard to overdose on. Second of all, most buprenorphine preparations are prepared with a little tiny bit of naloxone in it. Now, naloxone will completely reverse the effects of any opiate. But if one takes it as directed in the buprenorphine, which is dissolved into the tongue, it does absolutely nothing. But if you inject it, it will reduce the capacity for buprenorphine to make a person intoxicated. So it's believed to have less street value, and it's pretty clear that it's much less likely to cause an overdose. Therefore, the regulations regarding buprenorphine are vastly different. Methadone can only be prescribed, with the exception of a few clinics in New York or a few private physicians in New York, in specialized clinics, whereas any physician who takes an eight-hour training and applies to the DEA may prescribe buprenorphine in whatever practice they have. So this should theoretically open up the treatment for opiate addiction really dramatically, and it has to a great extent. I think we have around 600,000 people in the United States that have re received at least one buprenorphine prescription. I think my numbers are from 2009. So those are the main differences, and the, the most important one is that it's more accessible if one can find a uh, physician that's prescribing it. There's vast portions of this country where there's nobody prescribing methadone, and theoretically there should be physicians able to prescribe buprenorphine in any of these settings. So can people take uh, buprenorphine prescriptions home with them instead of going to a clinic every day? Yes. I, I have a small buprenorphine practice that used to be a demonstration project, and yes, I can prescribe a week or a month's worth of buprenorphine to patients, and they take it at home. I can do urine toxicology, see what other drugs they're taking, but I'm not required to. I offer all of them access to counseling, but that's not a requirement. So I, I found, at least in my small practice, that it attracts a group of people that really didn't have access to methadone or were not willing to access methadone. Um, I guess maybe I should say some of who those people are. Um, I began prescribing at needle exchanges, and some of the people I found are people who regardless of drug use, have complicated, rather chaotic lives, and they found it practically impossible through much of their lives to find their way to a methadone program every day and be polite. They just couldn't do it. I've got people that, I've got one patient who's in his mid-50s now, 
injecting heroin since he was 13. He's been two weeks on methadone, but he's been with my buprenorphine program for four years because he can show up once a month and get his buprenorphine. And I actually see this person out in the community, and I can do a pill count if I want on him if I want. He's taking it essentially as prescribed and has changed his drug use dramatically. A second group is working people that manage their opiate addiction. For me, it's mostly heroin users, but sometimes Vicodin or whatever users. They have enough money from their job, maybe blue collar, maybe a little higher up. They can buy enough heroin, $30 a day, to get by, but they're sick to death of it. And when they find a place where they can come once a week and then once a month, they're so happy to give it up. And then the third group is young people. They're not going to go to the methadone clinic every single day, six days a week for three months a year. So I've had some really interesting experience um, prescribing to people, say, between 18 and 24, that are just not candidates for methadone programs. There's not methadone programs, very few, that cater to that young group. And I don't really want to throw an 18-year-old in with people that are 50 years old that have been injecting heroin for... 30 years and have been in and out of prison a million times. Nice people, I care about them, but it's not a good mix. Mm-hmm. Well, we found that uh, true even with uh, our alcohol support group that uh, um, we've decided that it's better, you know, to have the young people separated from the older people. I mean, most of our group is uh, in their 40s or so or their 50s even. And you know, it's not it's not, the, it's not a good mix. I mean, the young people aren't that comfortable with talking to the older people. The older people aren't that comfortable talking to the younger people. Yeah, I mean, occasionally getting together is fine, but it's it's not always a good mix at all. And so, and and there probably, I mean, there are some buprenorphine programs that cater to young people. But oh my God, he's only nineteen. We have to have him counseling every day, four hours a day. They don't want to go, but they may want to change their relationship to drug use. So some of my young people have transferred from my very low-threshold program, which I transferred to a program serving young people in Manhattan. They come to the low-threshold for a while, and I've actually seen some of them transfer to much higher-threshold drug treatment programs, but only after they got the idea of, hey, this feels good not to be chasing heroin every day. This feels good. I, I really want to deal with this. So in some cases, it's the treatment. In some cases, it's the entry. And I think in some cases, it's just simply the taste. Oh, this is what life is like if I don't need to use these drugs. They go away. Maybe they come back. Planting a seed. Okay. Do you see uh, buprenorphine programs? Are they expanding in the United States? Are there more of them? Are they growing? They are, actually. I rather recently looked at some data, and over the course of, I think, two or three years, they went from under 100,000 people to, shoot, I should have checked this before, but I believe to over 600,000 people. And what's very interesting is that it has not diminished the number of methadone patients. It's hard to open new methadone patient, um, clinics, but during that time, the number of people on methadone for addiction increased by about 30,000. So we have whole new populations of people that either are new to opiate addiction or have not accessed treatment before that are now on buprenorphine treatment. So I, I, I think methadone clinics have felt threatened by buprenorphine. But I think for the most part in most of the country, we haven't seen the methadone clinics losing patients. We've been seeing simply more people in care, which is great by me. I think they're both great drugs. Some people feel better on methadone. Some people feel better on buprenorphine. I've had even young people on buprenorphine say, no, I think I feel better on methadone. And people that have completely failed methadone, some of my patients have been disasters at methadone, have done extremely well with buprenorphine. So just like high blood pressure, HIV, all these other things, we need a variety of medications, not just one. And I should disclose that occasionally the people that make buprenorphine pay my agency for me to give talks. So I I do have that disclosure to make. But at the same time, I defend methadone to the end. I think that for many people, it's the best of the two drugs. Okay. Can you tell us a little bit about Narcan? We won't be able to go into a lot of detail. I think maybe we'll do a whole other show on overdose prevention sometime. But just give us a little bit while we're waiting for our next guest to call in. Okay, very happily. So 
Overdose in the United States is a major public health problem. In many parts of the country, there are more overdose deaths than there are automobile accident deaths or motor vehicle accident deaths. So this is a significant problem for the whole United States. The U.S. government has been looking at a few alleys to or a few mechanisms to try to decrease this, but this is one that they haven't been looking at very much, although that's changing. Naloxone is a medication that if injected or squirted up the nose will completely reverse the effects of an opiate, including the respiratory depression that leads to death. And in at least 16 states in this country, there are community distribution programs where in, by one legal mechanism or another, naloxone is given to drug users, their family members, their friends, so that if somebody sees an overdose in, project, in progress in the community, they can legally, or in some cases underground, administer naloxone and prevent the overdose from progressing to death. Um, the Harm Reduction Coalition recently did a survey of all the programs that are known to us, and, and as of like August of 2010, over 50,000 doses of naloxone had been distributed, and over 10,000 overdoses had been reversed. Now, probably not all those people would have died. Maybe only 1,000 or 2,000 would have died, but ask their family members. They're glad that they survived. And also, you know, a, a near overdose is not good for your brain, so I, I don't know how many millions of brain cells we've helped out as well. So that, in a nutshell, is what's going on with naloxone, and it's a very exciting modality for preventing death. That sounds really good. We'll do a whole segment on this sometime. I see our next caller is here, so thank you very much for being our guest tonight, Sharon. Thank you very much. Okay. Okay, good night. Bringing our next caller on the air now. Hello, Katie, are you there? Hi, I'm here, Ken, yes. How are you doing this evening? Uh, doing very well, thank you. Great to be on the show. This is our second guest, Katie, if I say your name wrong, forgive me, Witkowitz? That's correct. Uh, Katie Witkowitz, who has worked with uh, Dr. Alan Marlette in Seattle, who's our good friend that wrote a preface for our alcohol harm reduction book, uh, How to Change Your Drinking, and uh, Dr. Witkowitz, Katie, may I call you Katie? Yes, please do. Katie uh, has uh, helped to author a book. You were the main author on a book uh, called, uh, I think, Evidence-Based Relapse Pre Prevention? That's right, The Therapist's Guide to Evidence-Based Relapse Prevention. Yeah. And uh, tell us a little bit about what is relapse prevention. What are some of the aspects of relapse prevention? Sure, happy to. Um, so it's interesting. Relapse prevention is, is kind of a general treatment goal, right, to, to prevent a person from sliding backwards into a previous previously changed behavior, um, as well as a specific manualized treatment approach. And so, um, you know, in many programs, treatment programs across the country and internationally, you'll see relapse prevention groups that can be kind of just more generally focused on relapse prevention. Um, and then there's also a manualized treatment, um, and of course the, the treatment manual written by Alan Marlatt and Judith Gordon in the 1985 um, that provides more of a step-by-step -step kind of eight-session guide. Um, there's other relapse prevention manuals out there. Dennis Daly has a great one um, that we've actually used in our most recent trial. Um, and uh, Terrence Skorsky has been doing relapse prevention, although his form is much more um, non-harm reduction, much more abstinence-based, whereas we're, we're definitely harm reductionists. Um, and we view, you know, relapse prevention as thinking about relapse to any treatment, you know, to any treatment goal. So if your goal is moderate drinking and you drink a little bit more than your goal, then that would be considered like a lapse. And so we want to prevent you from lapsing again, drinking beyond your goal. Um, and and so there's a, there's several steps uh, um, to it. Um, I'll, I'll stop and let, see if you have any questions before I get into that. So if your goal, for example, is safer drinking, you're not changing your mouse right now, but then is there relapse prevention for that too? Yeah, definitely, definitely. We think um, relapse prevention is really about identifying the situations that are going to make a person most at risk for 
violating their goals or, or you know, falling backwards on their goals. And so what's what's interesting is that it kind of applies not just to substance abuse behaviors, but all behavior change. Um, and and that's kind of what the the book that we have is is covering is just the vast majority of different um, types of behaviors, so self harm, eating disorders, sexual and criminal offending, um, all of those different behaviors. Um, have points at which a person could fall backwards or experience some sort of lapse to their beha- to their prior behavior. Now, I know Dr. Marlatt uh, talked about something called the abstinence violation effect, and people have even talked about a moderation viol- violation effect. Can you tell us a little about about the abstinence violation effect, how it works, what it does, uh, how to deal with it? Sure, definitely. And um, with my students, I like to call it the cookie jar effect. Like you have one cookie, you might as well eat the whole jar. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the idea that um, if if you've been maintaining some sort of goal, be that abstinence or moderation or safer drinking or, um, you know, eating healthy meals or whatever your, your goal is, and then you have a slight transgression um, such as having a sip more of alcohol than you normally would or having just a sip of alcohol if your goal is abstinence, um, then that kind of starts a cognitive process of people feeling like they've violated their self-imposed goal. And when you have that feeling, it's a very negative feeling for many people, that that tends to facilitate continued use in that direction. It's kind of like, well, I blew it by having this additional drink. I might as well have five more. Mm-hmm, um, and so it, it can be quite devastating, but... The data is very mixed on whether um, there's good support for the abstinence violation effect um, kind of generally, although people I meet with, clients I've met with, definitely experience that as as part of a lapse. It's it's definitely quite crushing. Well, I know a lot of people uh, report that they feel guilty and shame, and in order Mm -hmm. to get rid of these feelings of guilt and shame, they want to drink more alcohol or use more of their drug to, you know, get rid of the bad feelings. And it just is, like, you know, a negative feedback cycle that leads things worse and worse. Exactly. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and that's kind of one thing that we've been working on is is this idea of reframing these, these processes of trying to change a behavior um, as a more dynamic model that, that you know, takes into consideration those feed, those negative feedback loops that um that or in this case a positive feedback loop where the where the behavior actually kind of stimulates these really negative emotions and then the person just wants to drink or or use more drugs um and then that continues to you know lead to more even more persistent use and then more negative mood and um it's really uh just a dangerous cycle are there any specific relapse prevention strategies that you could tell us about? Definitely, yeah. Um, the initial goal and, and kind of the overarching goal is to identify um, each individual person's high-risk situation. So what situations or emotions or thoughts um, or people um, or behaviors and basically whatever um, makes a person most at risk for having a transgression of their behavior, so having that one more drink or or using a drug they've been trying to not use. Um, And so that's kind of the the treatment's really based around identifying those those high-risk situations and then identifying skills to help individuals cope in those situations to either avoid those situations altogether, which is obviously going to be the best strategy, um, or if you if you're in that situation, many situations we can't avoid. So if you're in that situation, then what do you do? How do you cope in that given situation? Um, and a lot of that is around managing thoughts, managing emotions, um, ways to to you know very specific skills for dealing with each individual person's individual situations. And and people will have multiple, of course, situations that might put them at risk. And so we like to, as part of the treatment, identify multiple skills that they can use in each of those situations. Um, And then there's also a component of of dealing with self-efficacy and problem solving. So a person, you know, one thing we know is that if a person believes that they can't abstain or can't maintain their moderation goal, then they're more likely to 
to have a bad experience. And so part of the treatment is, is based on kind of building people's self-efficacy towards maintaining their goals um, and doing some problem-solving around um, different people, places, things, emotions, thoughts that, that might kind of impact their self-efficacy or their belief in their ability to change. Those okay, are the so main cores of the treatment, <laughs> kind mm-hmm. of a lot. So self-efficacy is basically you believe in yourself. You believe that you're capable of accomplishing your goal. You believe that you can quit if that's your goal, or you can moderate if that's your goal. What are some ways that people can increase this belief in themselves? Well, a big way is through experience. Um, I mean, obviously through therapy um, or through through groups, through group work, or even through self-help work. Um, to the the more you learn skills, the more you feel confident in your ability to use them. So a lot of it's based on on a cognitive behavioral model, and the idea that if you practice these things outside of high risk situations. So one thing that we, we use a lot of in, in our treatment is drink refusal skills, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. teaching people how to do drink refusal, and then practicing that, you know, within the group, within the session, encouraging them to practice it at home with their loved ones. Um, or other people, and then the more they practice those skills, that really builds their belief um, in their own ability. Um, And then there's also just in in therapy in general, um, you know, consistent with a motivational interviewing style, you're really trying to bolster a person's self-efficacy as part of the treatment. Uh, So, you know, really talking to them about how they can do it and, and, you know, you believe based on if they learn these skills and if they apply these skills, then they will have success. Um, so giving, helping them kind of build that confidence by by talking it through with them. Okay. You also mentioned earlier dealing with emotions. Um, for example, uh, some people drink in reaction to negative emotions. Are there ways, what are some ways to deal with negative emotions? That is a whole session of the treatment, actually. We we have found that um, negative emotions are by far and consistently across all of the major drugs that, we, that we've studied, including alcohol, is definitely the biggest predictor of, of a relapse. Um, and so uh, clearly we spend a lot of time on that. Like I said, an entire um, session of, of our treatment is, is just devoted to negative emotions. Um, so those can include anger, depression, anxiety, boredom, loneliness, guilt, shame, general distress. Um, and, and what's funny is clients identify all of these. You know, they, they say they have all of those. Um, and that puts them especially at risk. Um, so we do a lot of things. I and mean, one is just kind of looking at what are their specific um, moods that they get into, their negative moods that might um, trigger uh, a lapse. And then we um, go over different um, skills for dealing with those emotions uh, as well as kind of uh, a more cognitive approach of just negative thinking and how negative thinking can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, so if you if you say to yourself, if I get angry, I'll lose it and hurt someone, or I always get angry, the more likely you are to to get angry and feel angry and, and potentially hurt someone. Um, so we work on those cognitions and, and mm-hmm. help people kind of restructure them. Um, so instead of saying, if I get, you know, I'm always angry, if I get angry, I'll lose it and hurt someone, we can restructure that as, well, there was this one time in which you got angry and hurt someone, but there's lots of times in which you've gotten angry and didn't hurt anyone. And there's lots of times when you've used your substance and not gotten angry. So, that, you know, try to help them break those links in their thinking. Um, and then one of the more effective things, or one of the most effective things that we're recently learning um, as effective for dealing with emotions is um, a mindfulness training. And we have a, a whole focus on um, meditation and mindfulness and identifying um, ways of kind of being aware of negative emotional states without reacting. Um, So just being accepting and aware of them with the knowledge that just because you're angry, you don't have to have a drink. There's Mm -hmm. other ways of dealing with that. And one of the techniques that 
was in um, you know Alan's 1985 book was urge surfing, and this mm-hmm. is a, a great skill. This idea that you know a, an urge is very much like a, a wave that'll that'll peak and then essentially die back down. And so, kind of teaching clients to um, ride out those urges or ride out those negative emotional states rather than get, giving into them. Uh, and we've uh, recently, you know, Alan's lab, um, particularly Sarah Bowen and Neha Chawla, in collaboration with Alan, developed a whole new treatment around this idea called mindfulness-based relapse prevention. Uh, so that's been our new newest interest because it seems to be really effective. And currently, we're we're pitting the two against each other. We have a trial examining mindfulness-based relapse prevention, and we're comparing it in a randomized trial to relapse prevention. So that that treatment seems to be particularly effective at helping people not respond to their negative emotional states because the the truth is that people are going to experience depression and anger, right? You can't prevent that from happening in a person's life. <laughs> but but what we can do is is help them come up with ways of managing those those feelings without using their substance or without going over their goal with their substance use. Yeah, I know I used to have a lot of depression, and I would say to myself, you know, if you'd been through what I had been through, then you would be depressed too. And it was almost like I deserved depression, and, you know, I was rewarding myself with the depression. And, you know, I, I learned to stop saying that to myself and say, well, maybe you deserve to be happy in spite of what you've been through. And, you know, when I kind of changed my perspective on things, it was uh, – well, depression was much less frequent. I mean, I used a lot of techniques to deal with it, but that was one thing for sure, was to not feel anymore like I deserved it. Right, and and to not identify with it as much. That's wonderful, you know, to not identify with yourself as a depressed person. Mm-hmm. You don't you don't have to be depressed. Um, and you can experience a negative mood and not be a depressed person. And, and that's a lot of what this treatment really focuses on is, is acceptance of of these negative moods and cravings because they come up. They they always come up for people in recovery. Well, I think the mindfulness approach is very interesting. I haven't had a chance to really look at it in depth yet, but uh, people on the show earlier have also been talking about it. It's one of the things I really want to dig into deeply soon and write some some things about. You know what research has been done. It sounds really like uh, a really fascinating road that we're going to be going down soon. I hope so. I, I uh, you know, in the few trials we've done so far, it's it's been incredibly effective. Um and and these have been trials with individuals who are who are mostly mandated, many of them polysubstance users, um some of them homeless. And so, you know, one of our biggest questions in our first trial was can we even I mean, will these people meditate? You know, will will they have that the opportunity for that in their lives? Many of their lives are very chaotic. And one of the most beautiful things about those early that early trial was seeing that indeed people did meditate. You know, on average thirty minutes a day, on average five days a week. Uh, and so it's very possible and it's very powerful for many people. Okay, do you uh, find that people have problems dealing with positive emotions like? I feel so good I want to celebrate with uh, drinking or drug use. Or... Definitely. Yeah, definitely. There is a lot of that as well. Um, it's kind of, you know, very similar. It's just kind of the flip side of the of the same coin in that, you know, your behavior is being guided by how you feel internally. Um, and oftentimes people will say that, you know, they want to celebrate or they deserve you know, a drink because they've had such a great day and they need to, you know, have have that extra drink even though they normally have been trying to have only two. But, you know, today was a really great day, so I'm going to have three and celebrate that great day. And um, it's not as powerful, we found, or the data would show that, that it's not quite as, um, or it's not as strong of a predictor for most people. Mm-hmm. Uh, for some people it is a very strong predictor, but for more people it's the negative. States, uh, but definitely the positive states play a role, uh, and it'd be interesting to see kind of the differences right between between those. And and the treatments we've developed don't tackle the positive as much as the negative. Um, so that's an interesting question. So, 
So are there any strategies you're aware of to deal with this uh, celebratory mood? Yeah, it's um, a great question. I mean, I think the mindfulness training addresses that to some extent because it's about not reacting to any mood, um, you know, positive or negative. Um, in in the relapse prevention treatment, we definitely, if, if celebration is a high-risk situation for you, because for many people they will identify that, as, as a high-risk situation, and that's one of the ones that we cover. Um, we have a kind of a checklist um, that we've used uh, by Helen Annis, the inventory of drinking situations, um, and included on those are positive reasons for drinking, either um, celebration or just kind of positive social interactions uh, that people report as risky for them. And so we definitely, as part of the prevention, address those states as well. Okay, um, how about social phobia? Is this a problem for a lot of people, and are there ways to deal with it? Yeah, so social phobia, um, it's an interesting one, because those individuals that we don't see a lot of people with social phobia in treatment, (laughs) or at least I don't in my treatment groups, right, because they're less likely to come to a group format treatment. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, But certainly uh, the individual relapse prevention approaches kind of treat social phobia as, as part of the general um, situations that might impact uh, relapse. You know, that for one, if they have to be in a social situation, how can they be in that social situation without having more to drink than they want or without using a drug they don't want to use? Uh, and so that's a big part of the treatment. And again, just analyzing those high-risk situations um, whether that be for an individual with social phobia or without. I don't know. If, does that kind of answer the, the question? Um, yeah, let's go into a little more detail. See, uh, our support group is mainly online. We have both the email support and uh, a live chat, which is actually a, it's a text chat, not a voice chat. So I see a lot of people with social phobia, I think, because email is not frightening, you know. It's not the same mm-hmm. thing in a room full of people. So I get a lot of people that come in and say, you know, uh, I've I've got this event coming up. I have to be with people. You know, I drink to relax to be with people, but I get in trouble because I get intoxicated and do crazy things, and I don't want to drink when I'm with people. But I get too phobic when I'm with people not to drink. I don't know how to deal with it. Well, I I, I think one thing we would do definitely with with an individual with that exact situation that we have done with individuals with that exact exact situation, because that's very common, uh, is to, again, look at those thoughts and really look at whether the person, you know, because that's a thought that gets really deeply ingrained, that I can't be in a social situation without drinking. And we present the data that shows, you know, there's some of Alan Marlott's earlier studies in a in a bar laboratory showed that when you gave people placebo drinks, even if they thought they were if they thought they were drinking alcohol, and actually they were just drinking tonic water that tasted like alcohol because it had a vodka float on the top, uh, they were more comfortable in social situations, even though they had no alcohol. <laughs> and so um, we we talked to clients about those studies and and talked to them about you know have you been in social situations, again using examples from their life, have you been in social situations in which you didn't drink? okay, and what happened then, and kind of do a functional analysis of those situations, how they were able to cope with, without drinking. Um, and and then a lot of the meditation techniques can be really helpful with that as well. So doing meditation before um, the the social event, as well as potentially during, uh, to, to really just be collected and, and aware of your own behavior. Okay, that's a really good suggestion. Uh, I'd never thought of that, but I will keep that in mind and suggest that to people that they might try meditation before going into the social event and they may, may be much calmer than otherwise. Exactly, yeah, because social events are are anxiety-provoking for many people, even people without social phobia, and, and we know that meditation can be very, um, can, can relieve a lot of that anxiety um, just by being kind of present with your own body is really important. It helps keep you centered and, and focused. 
Okay. Thank you very much, Katie. We're going to wrap up this segment now. Thank you very much for being our guest tonight and telling us about relapse prevention. You're welcome. Great to be here. Thank you. Okay. I'm going to do a little commercial right now for our website and book. The website is hamsnetwork.org. We're a support group, free of charge, lay-led for anyone that wants to make a positive change in their drinking, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting. Our book is How to Change Your Drinking, a Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol, available on Amazon. For details on our website, hamsnetwork.org slash book. I'm going to bring Stanton Peel on the air now. Hello, Stanton. How are you? Good, Ken. Your normal roundup of incredibly capable and intelligent people. I want to make a comment about your having two intelligent people um, on. And I want to lead into it by mentioning um, um, this great honor I had this week. I think I passed it along to you. There's oh, yeah. a new online 12-step publication called The Fix, and they picked the 10 most influential addiction experts in America. Dr. Drew was number one, and I was number ten on the list. Uh, Bill Miller was on it, Nora Volko. And everybody else they said positive things about. Uh, you know, naturally, of course. It, uh, mm-hmm. I was just ecstatic to be considered one of the most influential addiction experts in America. But where they talked about uh, how everybody on the list was... Uh, quietly working to improve the care, treatment, research, policy, public image, and understanding of the disease, uh, that's not why they had me on. They had me on because of my stubborn resistance to abstinence in AA. And uh, makes it, they said it makes them outdated in the field that's ever-expanding in knowledge. And then they said now if Stanton Peel can incorporate his viewpoint in with scientific, biological, genetic emotional and spiritual ingredients, he'd have his finger on the pulse. And then they they conclude by saying, but then he wouldn't be Stanton Peel, begrudger of abstinence, sobriety, Dr. Drew and AA. What do you make of it, uh, Ken? What do you think they're saying about me? Well, last night I uh, went on there and uh, left a comment on that article but um, I know they said that you had ignored scientific studies, and I've never known you to ignore a scientific study. And I said, you know, if you're going to make that claim, you should say, which study did he ignore? It was, it was very generalistic. And I've never known you to be against abstinence. Um, as a solution for many people, abstinence is the best solution, and everyone agrees, you know, when people choose to abstain, support them. I think it's fair to say they're against non-abstinence. What they mean is that I refuse to concede that abstinence is the only solution. I mean, did you get a feeling that that publication was very sympathetic towards harm reduction? Um, Not really, not really. They didn't mention harm reduction. Describing me, they didn't mention. I mean, if you want to say something positive about me, instead of like how I fail to join their group, you might say, well, Stan Beal was the first person to identify way back in 1975 that addiction isn't limited to just drugs and alcohol. Uh, I was the first person to talk about cigarettes being addictive. And now when DSM-5 is coming out in 2014, they're going to include compulsive gambling as an addiction. And I wrote about love and addiction in 1975. You might point out how prescient I was in that regard. You might point out how prescient I was in talking about natural recovery. You might talk about how early on I was in harm reduction, which has now become this colossal movement, as you can tell by listening to your guests. Your guests are notable because harm reduction is second nature to them. Uh, When you ask the woman with methadone maintenance, do they use other drugs, She, she says, well, of course. You know, there's a world out there of people Sometimes they're seeking methadone as a fill-in for heroin. Sometimes they'll drink or smoke marijuana. That's just what people do. And then, of course, when you talk to the woman, really brilliant from about relapse prevention, she said, well, we help people who are trying to achieve absence and people who are trying to achieve moderation. And both groups sometimes fail at their goal, and we explore what causes that, you know, why they drink more than they want or why they drink at all. And that's so second nature. And if you wanted to talk about what's happening now, 
uh, especially based on the NISARC research, which shows that most people, most alcoholics, improve or recover without abstaining, you would say that's the evidence that shows that's the direction we should move in. But that's the last thing that this publication is going to acknowledge. It's the last thing they're going to point out as a positive about me. It's If he can only get over being grudging abstinence in AA, they say, then he might have something. Um, it's almost as though they picked me to be the negative example of how you can get to be influential, whereas I would say by listening to your program, I hope we could see how my understanding and in so many areas, including this area, is bridging towards the next stage of addiction treatment. And that's, you and I have a discussion often about where uh, treatment is going and how well AA and 12 Steps can bridge with with, uh, harm reduction. And you can point out individual examples, Alan Clear, of course, and Dee Dee Stout. But what I'm impressed with, overwhelmed with, is how they're starting a whole new publication. They feel they're cutting edge. And I don't know how many people they're going to reach, uh, but they're really well publicized. And they're working full-time, really, I would say, against harm reduction. It's almost as though that's their major mission in life, to discount the possibility that people's lives can improve unless they become totally abstinent. Which brings me to my suggestion for your program, which I, you know, I made to you earlier on um, when we were having cigars in your church courtyard, which is I think you need to get some stupider people on your program, Ken. <laughs> you know what I mean by that? Uh, yeah, I do know what you mean. Uh, I'm not, I, Tell me, explain to the listeners what I mean, for God's sake, then. Um, well, I, I'm avoiding doing anything confrontational right now. I'm trying to bring on people that have something really positive to say that middle America isn't hearing. Middle America doesn't go to the harm reduction conference. They don't have access to these people. They don't have a chance to hear this. I'm trying to bring the harm reduction conference to middle America. That's my view of the show right now. So I'm trying to bring in these, these brilliant people that I've met, I've encountered, or I've encountered their work if I haven't met them personally, and I just say, look at this. Dr. Drew isn't going to tell you about this. Dr. Phil isn't going to tell you about this. But this is the stuff. This is the new stuff. This is what's going to be going on. Well, I mean, you do a great service in doing that for a very, very, very small segment of the population. Um, I mean, um, Alan Marlatt, of course, is recently deceased, so he wasn't one of the ten most influential people but I, I mean, maybe some the woman you just had on wouldn't quite be at that status yet. But you're not going to read her thoughts in the fix. You're, they're not going to give exposure to her ideas. They're not going to have her on, um, uh, you know, uh, Oprah. And I mean, the whole other way I think of conceiving of what we're about is how are we going to open up Middle America to even comprehend? that there are other ways of thinking about this. That's an awfully big block to deal with. So you don't um you don't want to have anybody from AA on and to you're a non confrontational guy, Ken. There's no way you can imagine interacting around them to try and explore why they reject your ideas and to try and figure out strategies for opening up their thinking to allow it. You don't you don't see that as a possibility. Um well, you know, it's, it's. I don't know if I want to do it on this show, but it's always possible to create another show. I mean, the internet is so flexible. You know, I could I could be running ten shows if I wanted to. That'll keep you busy. That'll well, here's busy. here's just a little idea. Of the way when I talk to somebody like that, I always start by saying, "Well, how many people do you feel successfully abstain?" you know, of the ones you encounter in AA or in any group, and nobody gives a large number for that. And then I say, uh, well, what do you think happens to the others of them? And their answers vary between, well, maybe someday they'll get the message, or who the hell cares or knows? They're not getting in the program. 
And then I say to them, well, let's you and I try and think instructively about how those people's lives might be improved, because that's where we're at here with harm reduction, and I would hope you would join me in that effort. Well, anyhow, just it's getting close to the end of our time. I just wanted to throw that thought into the hopper, because uh, I fear preaching to the choir. I mean, you have such great guests on. I want to broaden their audiences, and I want to expose their ideas to even larger groups of people, including those who are currently resistant to them. Carry on, Ken. Okay. Well, we might do that at some point. All right. Next week, we will have Dr. Mark Kern and Renee Franklin from Women for Sobriety. Thank you very much. Good night, everyone.